So I'd like to just begin by paying respects to my teacher, the Buddha. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Bhutang Tamang Sankang Namasami. So as, uh, as I sit here, coming into the space and feeling how it felt when, when we started, and going through the meditation, having a break. I went outside, spent a little time with the trees. When I came back in, it had the kind of party atmosphere after the cookies. <laughs> and, uh, and then now kind of collecting again for the talk. You know, just uh, what, what comes to my mind is how, how much our life is, is a process, how, it's how what we, we feel is ourself is ever changing depending on the conditions and you know it's, it's, it's really lovely to come in and, and feel that kind of vibrant kind of happy energy and and know that this is this can be really enjoyed in the moment and let go of and the you know, the the way we make our life difficult is when is by holding to a sense of permanent, everlasting me. And it's interesting how how tenacious those old memories and old perceptions of ourselves can be, even from from way back. You know, we might have a little story from something that happened a long time ago, and that shapes the whole way we see ourselves and the whole way we experience ourselves. And that is part of how, you know, that, that perception of ourselves limits how we manifest in the world. And we experience the world according to our perceptions. And in a way we kind of create the world actually, in accordance with our thoughts, intentions and perceptions. So, you know, in, in the practice of, of meditation and mindfulness, we're coming to know all of these different states that arise and cease in the, in the mind, in consciousness. And you know, there are some that are, that are really lovely and, and that, we, that we just want more and more of. And there are some that we just do whatever we can to avoid. And there are also, you know, a lot of, our, a lot of the experience of life is kind of nothing in particular. It's a kind of a you know, nothing special going on experience. And these days we have so many forms of entertainment that we can actually just absorb into computers or movies or uh, I don't know, various little things you can hold in your hand that do everything. You know, we, we have so many, many ways that we can just uh, avoid being or not, not be conscious with what's happening here and just absorb into something external. And even as a nun, you know, you can do that. You can sort of get lost in... Um, in internet or 
um, or just just in letting the mind wander. So it was interesting to hear the announcements and hear how strongly the emphasis on the on the four foundations of mindfulness was coming through. How many teachings there are on that, and the the teachings being made available here. And you know, this is a very profound and liberating teaching. The four foundations of mindfulness, and it is it is simply about being with this experience as it is. It's about being with this body, this feeling, this mind state, and whatever is present in the mind. It is about being fully conscious with this experience as it is. And you know, we tend to, because, because there are so many uh, wonderful distractions and entertainments, you know, just to come back to the rather, at first it seems very uninteresting, you know, why would I want to just sit and be with a breath for 40 minutes, it's so boring. You know, I, I don't want to be with a body, it's kind of, it's uncomfortable, it's, it's big, heavy, it's, it's aging, it's not doing what I want it to do, why would I want to do that? But these are our, these are our most profound teachers, this body and breath, and this ever-changing mind, uh, our most profound teachers, and they're, they're right here all the time. They never leave us. So, when I first started to, to practice mindfulness of breathing, I thought it was about, well it was for me at that time, about concentrating the mind, so pulling the mind away from all of the unskillful habits it was used to having, wandering into, and, and putting it onto the breath, which is pretty neutral, you know. And then by doing that again and again, and really putting effort into that, then it could start to experience very, well first of all, start to experience the, the craziness of my own mind, that's what I first discovered, how much um, constant running commentary there was going on, how negative it was, how critical it was, so that was the first thing I discovered when I started to meditate. And then as, as I kept going, I, I found that staying focused on the breath would bring a sense of peace and ease and falling away of the, of the many stories that we carry with us that can be just running all the time as a background to our lives and that we don't even notice that they're motivating our choices and our relationships. So, you know, these are, these are very, this is very skillful, you know, the breath can lead you to, first of all, focusing on the breath can first of all be like a mirror that you can see the habits of your mind. And then it can take you deeper to a place where there's, where the habits just aren't operating anymore. And over the years, what I've found is that the, the breath becomes more and more of a profound and beautiful teacher. It's always here, you know, and I ignore it a lot of the time, not noticing it a lot of the time. But when I actually stop and, and bring my attention to the breath, I start to see, gosh, you know, this breath, without this breath, I would live maybe, maximum maybe three minutes or five minutes if I'm lucky. Not very long. So it's very, very precious, <laughs> this breath, each breath, every, every single breath, very precious. And you know, in, in each breath, when I'm, no, when I'm present with each breath, 
what is it? Is it, can I say, it's a th is it something? Uh, is it, can, I, can I kind of pin it down, get hold of it, and say, oh, this is the breath and it's mine? You can kind of sort of do that. I used to have a good friend who was a sculptor. And he, uh, when I knew him, he was working with, he had a, he'd had some insight into the breath and he would have balloons and he'd ask people to blow into this balloon and they'd blow their breath into a balloon and he'd tie it up and he would make a sculpture around that balloon all kinds of different things, so, and then he would give it back to them. This, is, uh, this has come from your breath. So, in some ways we can say, there's, uh, you know, it's, it's my breath, this one breath is kind of my breath, but is it really, you know, is it really my breath? It's, it's, it's constantly changing, it's, it's because it's moving, it's, it, it's a breath, if it was static it wouldn't be. So it's, it's constantly changing, it's moving, it's coming in, it pauses for a moment and then it's coming out, it's going out. And as we breathe out, what's happening there, you know? Our breath, that is our life force, is just going back into the space. And uh, so you start to notice that, that vital process of our life that's going on all the time. When you start to notice it with real attention, you kind of see the if I may use the word, you can see the miracle of it. It's like a, a miracle. You know, this, just this process of, of air moving in and out of this body, this big physical heavy body, is, is bringing life. And when that last breath leaves the body and there's not another in-breath, then the body starts to decay and go back to the earth. So it's, it's kind of, it's an amazing, process. And as we sit here in this room and breathe, you know, we're all sharing the breath. And the, the trees around us here, those flowers are still alive, they're living, they're also breathing. So we're, we're totally interconnected. And yet we're also separate. So as we breathe in, that's our breath, which is nourishing this body. As we breathe out, we are giving ourselves back to the total interconnection of all things, of which we are part for this moment. And we breathe in again, and it's, it's my breath again. And we breathe out, and we're just part of the total interconnection. And just recently, about a week ago actually, um, Sister Santachita, who I live with in Aloka Vihara, she was, she was speaking to me about a Dzogchen practice. She'd been reading about a particular practice and, and she was saying that the, uh, it was a book that she'd got from here actually, by uh, Ridzing Shikpo, called, uh, Never, it's called Never Turn Away, it's a very good book. And, she said she read it, and she said the essence of this book is is, to, is saying uh, with the in breath. I think it's with the in breath. As you breathe in, bring a sense of inquiry or inquiry, and as you breathe out, know that your out breath is going is simply part of the infinite space. And when she said that, it was like, oh my goodness, how how have I missed that? Because I, even I had the sense of the interconnection, but then you still, there's still a sense of lots of parts, you know, that are all connected up. 
and that is one level of reality. Just as me being a separate somebody is one level of reality. And then there's that, it's like, then there's that further dimension where, you know, there is just this, this vast limitless space. And each breath is drawn from that. And each breath goes back to that. And if we, if we breathe with that in consciousness, if we bring that to mind as we breathe, then when my experience is this, this sense of self becomes much weaker, it becomes less believable. And the, the sense of, of space within which this, this manifestation is happening is, is, becomes great. So, you know, we can all get caught up in our, in our stories, in our lives, in our plans, in our fears, in our relationships, in our inner world, our outer world. You know, it's, it's, we can all get very, it can become very, very all-encompassing who we are, what our possibilities are, what our hopes are. The, the, the problems in our life, you know, we can, it's, it's not to say that these aren't part of, of, of reality, they are, they are an, an aspect of reality, they're a conventional reality, but they can become all-consuming where we can't see past that, we just, it's all about me and my life and my relationships and, and we're just completely caught in that vortex of me and mine. So the breath and, and if, can, with right mindfulness, right attention, can give us a much greater perspective. So it doesn't make our problems go away. It doesn't mean we have to give up all our relationships. But we see and experience the, the sense of me and mine within a much broader context. It's just a little thing that's going on at the moment. That's all it is, it's this me and mine process going on at the moment. These, these elements coming together at this time, doing what they're doing for a, you know, as, well, I was going to say for a period of time, but it's actually constantly changing. But let's say, you know, my name's Ananda Bodhi, so it's like these, these uh, conditions are coming together and there's a kind of an Ananda Bodying going on over here at the moment. It's, that's happening. And then when I breathe out the last breath, then that Ananda Bodying will stop happening. It might look a bit like me for a while, and then it'll start to not look like me anymore. And then it'll be Ananda Bodhi will just be memory. Just be, oh yeah, I met her once, went to a day long with Ananda Bodhi. Just be memory. And the Ananda Bodhiing process will have stopped happening. And there'll be some other process that will start up that we'll call something else. <laughs> so this is kind of what's going on all the time. And, you know, the, the suffering in our life comes when we hold that tightly. We hold that process tightly and we say, this is me, this is mine, and this is really, really important. And it's, it's a habit that we all have, you know, we all do it. 
So the Buddha, in his great compassion, is pointing to this, this delusion of mind, of how we take our experience to be absolute and to be completely who and what we are. And he points to a greater reality within which this is happening, which we can experience right here at this moment. We can experience, you can, even just if we experience the space within which we're sitting now, you know, there is a space above our heads, there is a space around us. Even if you're sitting quite close to somebody, there's still a space around you, space underneath maybe. And this hall is within a very beautiful space. And if you just keep following that space out, it goes on and on. You can go out of the atmosphere, it just goes out endless, infinite space. So this, uh, our experience of, of being somebody is happening within this context. And if we remember that, you know, we can allow this process of being somebody to go on without it being so painful without it being so absolute. So, you know, we're all, as, as human beings, we're, we have some good and some not so good. We have some strong points and some weak points. We have some wonderful attributes and some kind of things that we'd rather people didn't know about. You know, that's how we are, we're made like that. And, you know, if we spend our life trying to make this personality perfect, or you know, be the perfect person that our parents wanted us to be, or our school told us we should be, or our boss thinks we ought to be, or whatever it is, you know, then you know, we can do so much. We can we can do a certain amount of of improving and guiding and directing. But the important thing is to is to have that context, that, that broader context within which we live. And to recognize that the most, that, that the truest experience of being is interconnection or interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it so beautifully, interbeing. So as we come into this space, you know, we all just sat for about 40 minutes together in this space. And you know, I notice that when I'm, I mean, I know I'm in the hot seat here, so it's kind of more prominent for me, but when I'm sitting here, I'm influenced by all of you. The fact that you are all sitting there becomes part of my experience. It's part of what I am in this moment. So when I'm in my room in, in Lokavihara, it's a different experience. Or if I'm walking on the beach, it's a different experience. If people I know come, who are friends come into the, space in the Vihara, I experience that, that becomes part of me, a part of who I am at that moment, and then they leave, and then who I am is a little bit different again. And maybe somebody shares something with me that touches me or wakes something up in me, <coughs> and, and who I am is a little bit different to who I was when they came in. I have, I have a little more, or maybe a little less. Than, than, when I, than when when they first entered the space. So this is going on all the time. We are totally interconnected and, and, and influencing each other all the time. So it feels like, often it feels like a separate little me and my world, or me and my partner, or me and my family. It, can, it feels like that, but 
the truth of it is, is much greater than that. We're much more interconnected. So when we start to see in that way the, the fact of our interconnection and that you know, how we are, how, how we manifest in the world has a direct effect on others, you know, so it's a great incentive to, for two things. One is to let go of that contraction around ourself, our sense of self, to loosen the grip around that sense of me and mine, how I should be, how I, all, all the things I've accomplished, you know, whatever it is, whatever it is that, uh, whatever particular story that goes on, to loosen the grip around that so that we can allow this process of, of being somebody to, to do its thing. And, and also, you know, when, we, when we see the way we influence others, how, how we think, how we speak, how we act in the world, how that influences others, then you know, that can be, hopefully, a motivation that we can you know, train our minds. It is, it is a training of the mind to move away from those unskillful patterns and to, as much as we can, develop compassion and wisdom in our ways of relating in the world. So it can be that we have ideas about compassion. I'm supposed to be a kind person. I should be a, a compassionate person. You know? And sometimes we just don't feel like that. You know? We feel kind of mean, irritated, contracted, fearful. We give all those feelings and we're not manifesting compassion or wisdom. So you know, the thing is to, to meet ourselves also with compassion and wisdom. So if, that, well, if that's going on, we're feeling contracted and resentful and bitter or whatever it might be, to meet that honestly, turn, turn around and meet that honestly. And know this is, this is what is manifesting right now. This is arising now, it's got a, it's got a cause, a it's, it's there because of past conditioning. It's arising and I don't actually have to act on it. If you, if you have mindfulness, you have a choice. If you don't have mindfulness, you just blurt things out, start acting in funny ways, people start avoiding you, you wonder why you know, your life starts to kind of get miserable. That's what happens when we're not aware of what's going on within our own minds and hearts. But if we, if we have mindfulness, we can, we can just be with it, so we don't have to judge it, saying we're not supposed to be like that. We can know, this is, right now, I feel really resentful and irritated, and I don't want to be with this situation. And then you can breathe, take a breath, and feel that feeling, what it feels like to be resentful and bitter and negative. And know that this is not a permanent state, it's not who and what you are. It is arising at the moment. It has a certain energy. And if we can stay present, then we don't, and, and not act on that, then we allow it to go through its process. It's born, it goes through its life cycle, and then it dies, just like everything else in the world. If we allow it to do that, if we don't, if we don't keep feeding it with our speech and action. So this is an act of wisdom and compassion. Let me do that. 
And you know, the more we can do that, the more, the more that we can turn towards the, the, the actual experience that's happening here without the, the preconceived idea of what a good Buddhist is or a whatever, however you see yourself, without limiting yourself in that, but actually just honestly turning and facing what's going on and staying present with it, staying mindful with it, allowing it to be there, knowing that it will change, being willing to bear with it, the un- uncomfortable, unpleasant feeling until it's ended. And this is, this is also like, um, you know, we take refuge, as, as Buddhists, we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. So this is a direct application of that. So when we turn attention to what's going on here in our own mind, and when I say mind, I mean the, the experiential mind. I don't mean the rational thinking mind so much. That's a tool, useful tool, but I'm talking about the mind that experiences, that is impacted by life. You know, when we turn, bring awareness to that, that's like, you could say that's like taking refuge in the Buddha. The Buddha is the one who is awake. So we're bringing awareness to what is happening. And when we can stay with it, because we know this is changing, it's not who what I am. It's, it's a process that's going on and it'll, it has an end. When we can be with it in that way, this is like taking refuge in the Dharma, the Dharma of the way things are, the constant changing nature of things. And when we're willing to stay present with it, you know, the difficulty, the un- unpleasant feeling, maybe the doubts, when we're willing to stay present with that, that's like, that's like the Sangha, the, the one who is the one who practices well, who practices with integrity, practices directly. So we're bringing those three refuges directly into our life. We're using them. They're not something outside ourselves. They're not something we have to think, do I believe in that or not? You know, It's not something we have to even bow to if you don't want to. But it's, it's turning it and bringing it into your direct experience. So the more we do this and the more we, we learn to meet ourselves in our beautiful aspects, our brilliant aspects, our weak aspects, you know, the many, many different parts of ourselves, the more we can do this turn to meet ourselves as we are, we start and, and not, you know, not grasp, or at least remember again and again to keep releasing the grip and allowing it to be a process. The more we can do this, the more we just experience life as, you know, this is this is life right now. It's like it's manifesting in this way, and there's less um, bargaining. You know, we're not asking life to be perfect for us because we have the strength of mind to be with the difficult, and we have the generosity of mind to be with the beautiful and the excellent within us, which is also present. I noticed in America, my experience of being in America is this is a very generous country. This is all, since I've been here, I just, I'm, I'm amazed at how generous people are. But if I talk to American people about generosity, they always, their faces drop and they always say, oh, America, such a terrible, you know, and just so consumer, consumerist country, which it is too, it is consumerist too. But people tend to not actually see their own generosity. 
It's almost as if there's, a, there's something that you're not allowed, it's not allowed, you know. You can't say that I'm a generous person, you can't experience a sense of generosity, even if you're being generous. And so, you know, part of it is to, part of this practice is to also look at the goodness that is manifesting here in this being. It might be just being patient while you're experiencing a really strong negative emotion and not acting on it. This is a, a wonderful gift to the world if you do that. You know, or it might be that you're you're using your skills to benefit other people. There's, there's so many thousands of ways it can be done, and if that's happening, you know, then to to acknowledge it, take it in, know it, allow it to fill you in that moment. You know, we can really miss the the goodness and the strength and the cultivation that is going on, because we have some preconceived idea about how it should look, or how we should look. So the Buddha is asking us to turn towards direct experience as it is. Know it for what it is, allow it to arise in the moment and let it go. Know when we've held on too long. You know, the, 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 the indicator is always that it starts to hurt, we start to experience suffering. And when, we're, when we're attached, we experience suffering. This is when there is suffering, it's because we're attached. Those, that's just the way things are. Those, it's a, it's a, it's a fail-safe indicator. So if you if you find, oh, I'm experiencing suffering, I'm attached. You know what you're attached to. Don't add to the suffering by judging that. Don't start saying I shouldn't be suffering. It's stupid. You know how long have you been practicing? You should know by now. That's just adding. Here they speak about the, the second arrow, you know, if you have one arrow hit you and then, then you shoot yourself with another arrow, stupid, what you got an arrow in there for? And you don't have to do that. <laughs> you don't have to do that, you get the arrow out. You know where it is, it's painful. It might take a bit of rooting around, you know, it might not just come out so easily, but you just get it out. So this is how we learn to let go of, of attachment. And in letting go of attachment, we let go of suffering. And it's a, you know, it's a moment by moment practice. It's a, it's a humbling practice. It sounds so easy. It's wonderfully. I mean, it is easy. It is simple. I shouldn't say it's easy. It is simple, but it, it's, it's hard to do, and we forget again and again and again. So just, you know, remembering that this is the, the path that leads to freedom, liberation, and it will bring peace and happiness in our own life, even if, even if the, in the immediate it might be more painful to turn and face what's going on or to, or to let go of that tight grip, it might be more painful in the moment. But there's a certain wisdom that knows it's worth doing this, you know. It's better to let this go than to just hold on to it. It's better to get this arrow out than to just keep it in there or stick another one in there or several. You know, there's a wisdom that knows that that's worth doing. So it's known as the, the, the suffering that leads to the ending of suffering. And then, you know, when we can, when we know with compassion the way this being manifests in its many ways, we can also develop and cultivate compassion for others. And I find the more I'm, I'm honest about this human condition, you know, I'm, I'm a nun, so you might think I'm some, something's different to you, but I'm not. 
I mean, I'm just a human being with the same old stuff that everybody else has who's kind of decided to spend her life working on it full time, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> so, you know, the more I, I, I get to know the human condition within this being here, then the more naturally I feel compassion for others. Because I know it's, it's hard, it's painful being human. And it's, and there are all, and there are, you know, there are the great potentials, great hopes, great aspirations. And these are, these are wonderful and they need to be nurtured and, and cultivated. But there's also the, you know, rather humbling experience of being a human being in a body that's, that needs to be washed continuously. You know, you put food in, it has to come out. It's kind of, you know, it's not pleasant what comes out. It has, to, it gets sick. <coughs> it's, it ages. You know, it's not doing what I want it to do. It's doing what it, it's doing its own thing. It's, it's part of nature. It's just going on. At some point, it's going to die. And that's kind of humbling. So it's it's part of it's part of this is part of the being human. You know, this is part of what we what we are, what we have. And then there's what we can do with that. If we're conscious, we can actually really make the, the best of this lifetime, both for our own well-being and for the well-being of others. So it's a great opportunity. And you know, here in Marin, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a very special place. I feel that the whole Bay Area is a very special place. So there's, there's a very comfortable standard of living for many people, not for everybody, but for many people. And there are more Dharma centers here than I've, I think probably than anywhere in the Western world. There are more opportunities for practice, more teachers than anywhere in the Western world. It's quite remarkable. So, you know, we have this amazing opportunity. And we have this lifetime which actually isn't that long. It slips by. The weeks are going by so quick. I mean, it's what they say, you know, when you're young, you hear old people saying that. And, and you realize, oh, I am one of those old people. <laughs> the week's going by like that, you know. So, we have this precious opportunity to cultivate what is wholesome, what is good, what is compassionate and wise. And to hold steady with what is what drags us back, what drags us down. Hold steady with it. We can't just get rid of it. We can't just become another person. But we, we learn to develop that strength of awareness that is willing to be with those energies when they arise, those thoughts when they arise, instead of just acting on them blindly. And you know, recognizing our total interconnection so in, in practicing with the breath, I was, I was speaking with a, a friend in England a few years ago and about this, this experience of you know, how we are all the time sharing the breath. And uh, after speaking, this, this, this is a monk actually, he said after, after we'd been speaking, he, he was practicing mindfulness of breathing and with this sense of breathing in his own breath, breathing out 
sharing the breath with all beings. And then as he was sitting there, he had this image of, of an enemy, somebody he had a real, really, really bad relationship with, had a, very, had a very difficult past with, sitting in front of him. And all the feelings came up, the animosity, the resentment, the justification. And, and then he was sitting there and he realised, he's breathing out, I'm breathing in. I'm breathing out, he's breathing in. And that they were sharing, even though he wasn't actually sitting there, but that they were sharing the same breath. He and his enemy, who were in conflict with each other, were actually just breathing that same breath. And they were the same. They were one. They were totally interrelated. And as, as that was going on in the meditation, the, the sense of animosity and the sense of needing to protect and defend and blame and justify, all of that kind of fell away. And there was just he and this other person breathing. And he recognised, you know, that that enemy had, what he felt was an enemy, had was just a human being like him and, and had acted out of his own ignorance, his own confusion, just as all of us have at times. So, the, you know, the breath is a very profound teacher. It's always with us until we die. So, you know, we have, it's, it's wonderful to have the times of formal practice because then we can develop strength of awareness with, you know, because the mind is always wanting to go somewhere else. There's always something more interesting to do, something more important to do than be with the breath. So it's very important to have these times of, of formal practice where we can come back and we, we bring the mind, we bring our attention on the breath and we, and we keep bringing it there, we keep strengthening that attention. But that is, you know, that's really important to have that time and we can experience great depth and f falling away in those formal, times of formal practice. But it's also important to have, you know, that the strengthening of mindfulness carries over into your everyday life. So, you know, if, even if you're at work and it's very stressful and you're pulled out in ten different directions, the breath is still here. And you can just take a moment to take a breath. Especially if you feel like you're going to react, you know, you're going to suddenly react about something or you're, you're totally lost, absorbed into the computer, or whatever. <coughs> Stop for a moment and, and take a breath, a, a fully embodied breath. It's just right here. And then it kind of brings you back from, the, from being lost and, and drawn out. And likewise with the body, you know, when we're walking, instead of walking and being completely caught up in our thinking, our planning, our hopes, our you know, stories about what happened in the past, what about actually being with the physical body that's right here? It's much more useful. <laughs> when we're standing waiting for something, waiting for the cookies or whatever we're doing, you know, instead of waiting and feeling irritated with the person in front of us, being fully present while standing. When we're driving in the car and there's a, you know, there's a traffic jam and we're really irritated and... Why? Why do that? Why get irritated? What about... Here's, a, here's an opportunity. I'm, I'm trapped here in the car. Here's an opportunity for practice. Here's, no, here's a little, like a half-hour retreat. <laughs> <laughs> it's a gift. 
It's, it's all about how we use our mind, putting attention in the right place, in the right way. So I really, you know, just like to offer that as a, as a guide and encouragement for everyone. And, you know, with full confidence that if you do even just a little bit practice this and develop this, that it will bring greater ease in your own life and greater joy in the lives of those around you. Completely confident about that. So I'd like to offer this for your reflection this evening. So we have about 15 minutes left, so if, if anyone would like to share anything or if, if there are any questions about anything I've said, this is an opportunity to speak and I think there's a, there's a floating mic so that everyone can hear you. So if, if you'd like to, and if you're shy, I'd just like to say I'm also quite shy and I'm sitting here, so <laughs> if you feel shy just have a little empathy and know that I can get over it, so I'm sure you can too. Does it work? Yeah. Okay. Clear. Well, we've been having these discussions on Monday nights for many, many months, and uh, welcome to Thank Spirit you. Rock. Thank you. And it, it struck me with joy when you said you'd been outside, you came back, and it was sort of this convivial party atmosphere or whatever after the cookies, the tea break. And I thought I'd just mention it once again to everybody how important it is. Uh, the Dharma community, uh, how important we all are to our own well-being. And when you're talking about sharing breath, we really do. It's just different than when you meditate on your own someplace. And then you said that that was part of the process, that that was us, that we change based on circumstances, mm -hmm. that we're different just because of the process. So I think I got what you said. We are the process, actually. The process is constantly changing. And then we're influencing each other. It's all a process. What we think of ourselves as me is in itself a process. A work in progress. Yeah, a play in progress. Uh, thank you for your talk. That was wonderful. Um, my question is, uh, at um, a lot of uh, Spirit Rocks talks and in this tradition, there's a lot of talk of meditation, um, meditation practice and the mind. But there isn't as much talk about uh, merit and mm -hmm. rebirth. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if you could kind of give a little plug for merit and rebirth. <laughs> thank you for asking. It's kind of taboo a little bit, isn't it? Yeah, merit is very important. It's, it's a sort of an unfortunate word, actually, merit, because it, it tends to sound a little bit like brownie points, you know, which is not how it is. But it is very important to, to cultivate. The, the Pali word is punya, which for me has a very, very different meaning to merit. And it's, it's, like, a, it's like an accumulation of, of spiritual strength, you could say, or goodness in the heart. 
And it is very important to cultivate this. And, and, and one cultivates punya through, well, there's, there's innumerable ways you can do it, but generosity is, is central. Through, through generosity, through patience, through not, well, through many of the things I've been saying, actually, through not following negative, you know, unwholesome intentions, um, through the practice of meditation, the practice of loving-kindness, the practice of letting go. These are, these are all ways of, of developing punya. And I think a very important part of it is to, is to actually you know, physically do good in the world. So, you know, the, the, there's, I mean, the, the, you know, I, I don't listen to the news very often, but I know that things are in a pretty bad state. And there are, there are many, many opportunities to, to do good in the world. There's many people who are, who are waiting for, for someone to pay attention and, and lend a helping hand. So, you know, this is a very important, I feel especially at this time, this is a very important way of making merit, making punya. And the, the, you know, one might ask, well, what does it mean, making merit or punya? What's that about, you know? And it's like, um, and this kind of leads naturally into the, the, the uh, subject of rebirth. So in, in Buddhist understanding, the Buddha doesn't talk about reincarnation. He doesn't speak about like there's a soul that begins and it goes through different incarnations. The Hindu way of thinking is more like you, know, you start, at, start at the bottom at some kind of like green algae or something and then you, you work your way up. <laughs> And then we've got like human birth, which is very fortunate. It is a very fortunate birth, even it doesn't always feel like it, but it is. And you know, and then you can you can kind of get higher and higher, get more and more refined. This is the kind of the way the the Hindu understanding. It's like a linear process of of, pro, of progression upwards. Whereas the Buddhist understanding is not that there is a soul that is that is that begins somewhere and goes through these different incarnations, but that there is. Um, or it is a kind of tricky thing to speak about, but that there is, let's say, there is, let's say, intention. It is actually, it begins with, with wrong, with ignorance. The whole reason we kind of are born into this world is because we think there's something inherently satisfying here for us. That's what's brought us here. We're looking for that inherently satisfying something, which we, we actually won't be able to find in the world because the world is constantly changing, and we are constantly changing. So. So it's the it's the the ignorance, the not understanding that everything is in a constant state of flux, that that brings us into birth, into being somebody, something, and and here we are, you know, my mother will tell you that I was born <laughs> 43 years ago, and you know, and I and my experiences of is of a certain sense of continuity through this lifetime a certain sense of continuity, a certain character and so on. But I would still say that the baby that came out of my mother's womb is not who is sitting here at the moment. And who I was when I was 21 is not who is sitting here at the moment. And probably the old lady, if I live that long, who will be on her deathbed, or maybe not so old lady, whatever, isn't the person who's sitting here now. So there's a certain continuity, there's a certain karma, you could say, there's a certain 
tendency of, of, of character or of mind that, that follows through. And if we just follow that kind of willy-nilly, then we're just what they call on the, on the, on the wheel of samsara. We're just, we're just um, perpetuating habits. And the, the practice of meditation actually gives us a, an opportunity to, to break the habits and to start to cultivate other, well, to cultivate what is good and to burn up what we don't need to do anymore. So the, the essence of the Buddha's teaching, and I say all of the Buddha's teachings, is to say there is, the, the, to, to guide us to refrain from doing harm, intentionally doing harm, to cultivate what is good and to purify the mind. And purifying the mind is allowing karma to burn away through our conscious present awareness. So, you know, we, for me, I, it's, it's a little bit difficult to talk to people who have no sense of rebirth because I, it's always been sort of made sense to me. And, and even though I, I grew up in a family where with one, my mother was Christian, my father was agnostic, or I would say atheist, but he says agnostic, they both had an understanding of rebirth. It was sort of taken as, as given somehow. So I've always had that sense. And to me, it makes complete sense it, over, over lifetimes that, that one comes in with a certain karmic package and, you, you know, life meets you in these different ways because of the, the karma that needs to be worked out. And what we do with that determines how we live and how we die and what we take with us. Um, and it may be that you think this is all a load of rubbish and you don't want to believe in rebirth and that's fine. There's no need. It's okay. But what you can know is even in this, in this lifetime, you know, when you have a thought, like so let's say, just say, let's just take a day. You know, you, you, you get up, you wake up in the morning and you could say like you're being born. That's a new day. You wake up. It hasn't happened yet. You're born into that new day. And then when you wake up, it's not like there's a completely clean slate. It's not like the, the mind is totally free and empty and then you construct yourself and, and then you, you decide what you're going to do. It's like, you, rem you know, there's a sense of, after, there might be a moment where there's just kind of the mind's open and you haven't thought about who you are yet. But very quickly, you know, the story of who you are comes in, what happened and what you've got to do today. All that sort of comes in very quickly. That's from yesterday or from however many yesterdays. And then through the day, you know, your, your, the sense of who you are will manifest in different ways. You know, there'll be maybe a, a hopeful feeling as you, as you, as you get in the, go off to work or whatever, or you, and then there's that feeling and then that will change. And then you have a really difficult interaction with your boss and you feel really fed up and you're angry and, and then there's that for a while, and that will go on, and it'll have its own lifespan, and, that, and then that will change. So this is, this is also the cycle of rebirth. It's going, it's going on all the time. And what, the, the, what, we, what we do is we, we grasp hold of that and we make it real. We say, this is who and what I am. We keep doing that again and again and again. And so that can happen just in a daytime. You can watch it going on. Or it can happen over lifetimes, I believe. But I, I don't want to convince anybody because it, it doesn't. It doesn't need to be. It doesn't matter if you, if you think if you don't believe it. It's it's okay. Life. You can still practice. 
But uh, I find very, very helpful the Tibetan Wheel of Life and Death. I don't know if you've seen that. There might be one here somewhere. It's, it's a very brilliant teaching. It's taking the, it's actually taking several aspects of the Buddha's teaching and putting it in, into a, a pic, uh, into a mandala, into a pictorial form. And in that you see the, the six realms. So there's the heavenly realms, the Azura realm, which is like the jealous titans or the jealous gods realm. It's like competitive, jealous, maybe divas, you know, also could be in that realm, the, and warriors. And then there's the, the human realm, the animal realm, the hungry ghost realm, and the hell realms. So this is like, this is Buddhist cosmology, this is how it's, this is how it's depicted. So, you know, you might think like, oh, now this, this Buddhist nun's come here, she wants me to believe that there's heaven and hell, and ghosts, I mean, what's she going on about? But, <laughs> but if, if you actually look at your mind states in a lifetime, you might recognize, you know, times of addiction when you're in the hungry ghost realm, where however much you try, you can't get enough. And it's just, life just isn't fulfilling you and you're, and you're trying and you're trying and you're trying and it's just not doing it. That is like the hungry ghost realm. The mind is, the mind state is the hungry ghost, is in the hungry ghost realm. Or you're, you're obsessed with sex, eating, sleeping, you know, you just, it's just, this is like the animal realm. Your mind is in the animal realm, it just wants the next comfort or pleasure. Or you might be in a hell realm. You know, I've certainly experienced hell realms, and one of the one of the attributes of a hell realm is it feels like it's going to go on forever when you're in it. <laughs> it feels like you never it's never going to change. It's 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 absolutely awful, and it's never going to change. That's what it feels like. And then, of course, it does change. Then you recognise, okay, even even the hells are impermanent. And then, um, if you have uh, well, it might be you might experience it with with music or in nature or um, through meditation practice, the heavenly realms. So your mind can experience exquisite bliss or exquisite peace, and that's like the the heavenly realms. And then you feel like, oh, I just want to have that forever. That's so gorgeous, but that's also impermanent. It, it has its time and it changes. And here we are, as human beings, in, in between all of that. Oh, there's the Azura realm, that's right, the Azura. I always forget about the Azuras. That's like the, the, the competitive, it could be like a, a competitive businessman, you know, successful competitive businessman, it's like the Azura realm. Or a, or a diva, you know, someone who's got a great gift, very beautiful, needs a lot of attention, needs to be the best, needs to, needs to be better than everybody else. Or a, or a warrior. You know, someone who's fighting has the, the, the most powerful warrior. You know, these, this is like the Azura realm. So you have a sense of, it's a great sense of self and, and a, a lot of jealousy. And it's, uh, it can have, it can have a, you know, there is a certain pleasure to it. That's why people go there. There's a certain pleasure and sense of, of accomplishment, but it's, there's also a lot of suffering in that because you've got to stay on top. You've got to keep others down. So that's like the Azura realm, there's a lot of it in, in the Western world. And then here we are, kind of the, the human realm, in the middle of it all, is the, is the place where it all meets, so particularly the place where heaven and hell, like the place between heaven and hell, you could say, where we can, or between animal and, and, and deva, 
and, and celestial. It's like, because we can experience the most beautiful heavenly experiences and we can, we can, we can be, you know, very refined and beautiful in our way of living and relating. And we have animal bodies. They are mammals, you know. They're part of the animal realm. And we can experience really hellish mind states. So, you know, the Buddha sees this as a, as a, as a great advantage, a great opportunity, because we're not stuck in the hells where we just can't see it, we just can't see out of our suffering, we're just lost. We're not stuck there, because when you're stuck in the hell realm, you can't find a way out, you know, you just don't see any further. Sometimes you just have to wait for it to change. And if we're in the animal realm, we're just caught, we're just lost, you know, we're thinking about the next pleasure, the next thing we can eat, the next, you know, time we have sex, or whatever it might be, you know, it's like, it's not, it's, it can be, it can be very pleasant, you know, it can have a lot of comfort, a lot of joy, actually, and a lot of pleasure, but it's kind of, where does it go to, you know, it's, it's, it's all happening within this body which is going through its process and it's going to die one day, so, you know, what's the, where's the real, there's no security there, there's no ultimate lasting happiness there. So we can experience all of these different states, and yet there's that, there's the, and, and we have this animal body, this, this kind of earthy animal body, and there is the potential for great wisdom, great, for enlightenment as a human being. So the, the human realm that we, you know, when our mind is in it, <laughs> the human realm is the most um, fortunate realm. And part of the human realm is, is living with ethics, you know, with integrity towards others, you know, not just getting what we want at any cost, getting rid of what we don't want, regardless of how it affects others. It's, it's, uh, it, it has a certain integrity and centeredness and wisdom to it. That's part of what it is to be fully human. Thank you for asking. Yeah. So I've gone a little bit over time, as I often do. And I'd like to just also bring people's attention to this, these flies of Buddhist global relief. So this is something that, uh, since Aloka Vihara's opened, we've, we've been sort of quite in quite close connection with Buddhist global relief, which is a, is a charity, it's a Buddhist-based charity which supports people in, in many different parts of the world of, of different, gen, you know, male or female, but it does mostly focus on girls, actually, because girls tend to get the rawer deals in poor countries. And uh, it's to provide f different ways of providing food security for people who don't have enough to eat. So that can be through providing actual food or through helping with more sustainable farming or through teaching women in Africa about breastfeeding so that their children can have a better chance in the beginning of their life. So it's, it's, there are many projects, and I'd like to invite you to take, if you haven't already, to take a, take a leaflet and read it, and maybe go to the website and read a little bit about what Buddhist Global Relief are doing. It was established by Bhikkhu Bodhi and friends, and it's one of the few Buddhist charities, actually, and it, there, are, there are some, but this is like an umbrella charity that, that helps many people. So... This is, I, I feel this is a really important part of, of practice, is there's our, our meditation practice, our taking care of ourselves, our generosity in, in, 
in community, like you're saying about this Dharma community, this is wonderful to have this. But the, you know, the when I say about our interconnectedness, the community is much bigger than this. It goes right out, right across the globe. <laughs> so to to reach out also to connect with with other parts of this human community that who are really who would who would benefit immensely from a little bit of you know from a small gesture actually of, of support. So I just would like to invite everyone to just take one and read it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.